we're going to do something really for the second week in the row that um, is one of the benefits of going through the Word as it comes unfolded through Scripture. Uh, oftentimes, the Word does not say things that you want to hear. Um, I, was at a, I was at a workshop the other day, and the pastor said, how many of you like to be lied to? And of course, no one raises their hand. And he's like, we all like to be lied to. That's how advertising works, is you get, uh, you get this idea that's presented to you, and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And although it really doesn't offer what it says it will, you're like, here's my money. I love it. And sometimes our church experience, we just want to be patted on the shoulder and sent on our way so that we can live the life that we want to live. And it's tempting to read the Bible or to choose a church or to listen to sermons uh, wanting to be lied to. And so it's my job going through the Word to go through the tough stuff. Last week we went through something that's sometimes uncomfortable. You know those topics where you're like, this is the week I invited a friend. Why is he covering money. Last week we looked at the, the, the call of James to be glorying in the humiliation for the rich and the exaltation for the poor. And we got through it to God's glory and our good. We understand that we hold everything loosely in the kingdom. And this week, again, we'll have one of those topics where it's like, oh shoot, I brought a friend today. Uh, but I'm glad you're here if you're the friend that came. This is a great message. We just have to get through uh, a couple of the parts that might sting before you get to the blessing. And so today we're going to talk about sin. Welcome to church. Let's talk about sin and temptation. And to do that, um, just to, it really provides us a good recap of what we've been talking about because the first, the first wave of the book of James, James is saying to the churches scattered abroad, in other words, I, I know life is, has been not what you expected. You've been, uh, you've been uprooted and you've been planted somewhere that was not your home. It's a new place. And if you are scattered abroad, count it all joy as you go through various trials. And that word trials... We've really been studying in the way that life sometimes comes at the believer because we're going towards God and the fallen world goes against him. And by the nature of things on opposite courses, there's sometimes collision. And that happens in our life. We call that trial. When the fallen world that we live in, surrounded by fallen people, create a circumstance in our life that doesn't feel joyful, James says, don't worry because you're going towards God and your joy is rooted in him. In the presence of God is the fullness of joy. And in his sovereignty, in the end, as he says, anyone who endures temptation, there will be a crown of life. So take heart or be joyful because your circumstances that are pointing out the fallen world and the nature of the trials that come are not defining you. So we count it all joy. Now we come to a second half of the way that sometimes we have to endure trials, which is not trials from without, going against the grain of the world, but actually trials that come from our own inward temptation. So read along with me with all of that in your mind, starting in verse 12 of James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We actually ended with that verse last week to give us this promise that our joy is covered in the sovereignty or in the big picture of God. As we endure the 
the trials of the fallen world we live in, as we navigate through the, the, the pandemics of life and the, the chaos of the world, in the end, you make it all the way through and God meets you with the crown of eternal life. And then James will go on to say, but transitioning towards trials of the world, towards temptations of our own life, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, when he is tempted, when he is drawn away by his own evil, own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We recapped the first three sermons we gave in the book of James, really under the title of Strategy for Trials. You could almost say this is Strategy for Temptation which means all of us should be listening. Well, you came to church, you volunteered your time, you should be listening anyway. But the reality is, is that we're all going to be tempted. And what James is giving us is really, in the verses that we read this morning, an outline for how that temptation comes into our life, where it takes us, and then what we do about it. So that will be a simple way that we're going to re-examine what we just read. Temptation, temptation leading to sin. Sin leading our lives away from God, creating trials, temptation. Uh, So where does it come from? Good to know the source of your problem so that you can get to the source, get to the root of the problem. And then not only where does it come from, but where does it lead you? So that when we face the temptations of our life, we have an understanding of what's really at stake as we go through the trial. So where does it come from? Where does it lead you? And then what do we do about it? That is essentially what we've just read out loud as James has laid before us a strategy for the temptations of your life. Where does it come from? Well, before we get to the answer of Scripture, as oftentimes is the case, we get where it doesn't come from. And that's why he says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, this is a... It's something that James is warning us against or saying, don't do this, an anti-command, because that seems to be the nature of our sin. It seems to be that when we go through trials of the world, going against the grain of culture or the world that we live in, or when we go through the trials created through sin in our life, oftentimes the reaction is to look for the source of the problem by looking outward. Uh, I, is it too early for Christmas? I asked that question a couple weeks ago, and it was like a mixed bag. But uh, I think Costco's got the trees coming out. So let's just do with a Christmas analogy here. I have a two-year-old, which means I read the same book over and over and over and over again. And the book of the week last week happened to be The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. So hopefully it's not too early to draw a lesson from this book. But in the very beginning of the book, they've laid out the problem, which is that he hates the Christmas season. But don't ask the reason, because no one knows why. And then they give a couple of things that it might be. What are they? It might be that his head is screwed on too tight. It's the way he was made. (laughs) 
someone made him to be this way and his, it's, it's, it's a problem with his head. Or it may be that his shoes are too tight. It's like there's something externally that's just pressing on his life which makes him hate the who's down in Whoville. And I won't tell you how the story ends. There's probably more points I'll draw from that as the season goes on. But this is the initial idea of what is wrong with me. And allow this uncomfortable topic of sin to already violate some of the worldview that's probably represented in a crowd this size, which is to really understand the problems I have with my life, my anger, my uh, difficulty with human relationships, my laziness, my overworking, what I need to do is go talk to my therapist and then cut like an onion through the layers of my life all the way down to my childhood so I can figure out which teacher or pastor or parent gave me all this bad direction. And when I find that, then I can kind of unravel that and get back to who I really am. That is part of the blame that James is saying, beware of saying, you know, it's really, it's, it's God's fault because he put me in this, this circumstance with these people. Or you can, you know, go through the, the outbursts of sin in your life and try to justify it by saying, just had a really bad week. My job is super stressful, and the coworkers I have are all idiots, and I have to deal with them, and my shoes are on too tight. So that's the problem. And we see this, which is why it comes up in Scripture as an anti-command to, to not do this, at the very beginning of the introduction of sin into the story of God. Remember, the story of creation is God creating all things good and then explaining to us his plan for redemption because the good went bad. How did the good go bad? It was in the garden, where there was one command that God had, do not eat of this fruit. When you do, you die, which is a preview to where this takes us. And when God approached Adam as he has fallen and says, did you do it? What does he say? He says, it was the woman that you gave me. It's the vertical and the horizontal, the blame right there. God, you made her. I was taking a nap. I woke up with a wife, and she tempted me. And as I'm studying this and judging Adam for his horrible blame, I realized that last week I, storied a, I shared a story of my own tumble or my own fall, my own garden experience. And then I realized as the story continues, there's more to share to, sh- to, to confess my own sin. Because if you were here last week, you remember me saying, my wife called me, said, did you do something you need to tell me about? And I'm like, oh, this sounds like a moment of humility. I'm going to have to say no to that. And then she says... Did you eat the candy that I bought? She bought a big bag of candy. She might pass it out to the neighbor kids some point during the, during the month. I'm not sure. But I had to say, yeah, I did. I did eat it. And you know why I ate it? Which is something I didn't share last week. I said, because you bought it. <laughs> you brought it into the house, and you put it in plain sight. What did you expect me to do? You know I'm a sugar addict. I ate it because you bought it. I'm tempted because you are putting things in my life to tempt me. The story actually continues because later in the week, I found a purse that uh, one of my daughters had filled up in her own sneaky and sinful filling up of candy. It was like overflowing. And I found it, and she was so guilt-ridden. She's like, couldn't even look at me because she had done what I did. And I'm like, why did you do this? And she said, because you opened it. (laughs) And I'm like, but your mom bought it. And God gave me her, so really it's God. And this is something that every single one of us will be uh, uh, 
pulled into because the, the best way, the, the way that we navigate the failures of our life is to really look outward. And here's where James makes us all a little uncomfortable because what does he say? He says, let no one say it's of God because God cannot be tempted. Side theological point, temptation draws on your lack. It offers you something that you desire that you think you need. And what does God not have? Lack. He needs nothing. He desires nothing. He is whole and he is complete. And he is drawing us into a whole and a complete reflection of him. Which means God can't be tempted because he is perfectly whole. And then it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn by his own desires. The beginning of sin in your life is temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. But temptation draws off something inside of you that can be pulled from God's good design into sin's destructive path. It's always playing on something inside of us. So allow me to continue to offend the friend that you brought to church this morning. Your sin is your fault. The things that you have done in your life and now pay the consequences of because it has separated you from God's perfect will and put you towards your own will, which does lead away from God's goodness, there are all sorts of nuances to this. There are people that will let you down. There is a fallen world that you must live in. But when the the Bible presents with us the enemies that exist against our relationship with God, it says the world, the flesh, the body that we live in, and the devil. And overwhelming majority of the teaching of Christian discipline has to deal with the flesh. In fact, in this classic example of how to deal with temptation that leads to sin, notice the name that's not given. The, the, Satan, the devil, the tempter, is not part of the cycle of sin that James is offering because he is saying it is, in fact, your own desire, which aligns with Jesus when he says that from the heart flows all sorts of evil and wickedness. From our own heart, every single one of us can, can find in our lives something that has the capacity for God's goodness and also has the capacity to draw us towards evil. And as a side note, before we look at where sin leads us, just to remind all of us, I mean, we just listened to an invitation to the conversation with LGBTQ. We have, in all of the ways that we preach, we'll cover different topics of the Bible that will be examples of sin from fornication, adultery, anger, bitterness, greed, and really the the picture that James is about to use is to say that when your desires lure you, it's like a hook in the water, and in, in some ways, think of it this way, the desires that you have in your heart can be presented to you as bait on a hook, and all of our bait looks slightly different. You will be tempted in ways that your neighbor will not be tempted. Your bait will look different than your friends and your wife's and your churchgoer and the person that you're watching fall. And what we're not supposed to do is to say, what an idiot that fell for that bait. Because if I was that fish, I would have kept on swimming. Yeah, until you get to your bait. Every person has something inside their heart that can be used against them. And just so you don't think that this sermon is something that you can listen to, master, and get on to the next lesson next week, your bait will change throughout your life. You may overcome the desire for more money in your life that turns into pushing away relationship because you need to use people to make more, and it might turn into your lack of 
the desire to have community in your life where you're serving one another and loving one another. And as you mature in Christ, you're also maturing away from sin and towards new areas of maturation. So let us all just take a deep breath and realize that this message is for all of us, and at times it will change for how it's applied. So the word says, James says, the, the, the morning sermon says, check your heart. Your sin lives in your heart. And now we have to ask the question, why does this matter? I've got desires. I'm playing with them. I'm figuring out which ones work and which ones don't. As James will point out, it matters because sin, temptation leading to sin, has a path or a cycle. Just as we started this morning by reading verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, your life in Christ has an end destination. Jesus says there are two paths. One leads to life. And as we follow Christ and the good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in, we walk towards the crown of life. Jesus also says there is a broad path that leads to destruction. And one of the reasons that sin is sometimes not the best topic on a Sunday morning for people to come and be encouraged by the word is because it's going to give a warning that a lot of us don't want to hear, which is this. As we live our lives and our desire comes into that temptation that, as James will say, is enticed, or when, when we bite the bait, here's where it leads us in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn, drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I have come to give life, the reward, the crown of life, and life more abundant, meaning life now for all areas of your life. More life, more joy, more love. Jesus comes to be that shepherd for your life. But he says the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. The thief that he is describing could very easily be the sin that draws you away. That's the the fishing illustration. The lure goes into the water, the fish was on his way towards something, and now he gets drawn into the boat, away from the water, towards the death of his life. This is what sin does to anyone who goes through the cycle of sin from temptation to sin. It's conceived, and then it gives birth, and then it dies. And And this is now the the portion of the word where when you meditate on it and you really try to understand what is being said, think about verse 15. It's a very difficult illustration. James has been full of illustrations so far. We've we've had the illustration of the double-minded man is like a wave and you're tossed to and fro by the wind. You'll get nothing from the Lord. Uh, He's given us the illustration of, of fishing. He now gives us the illustration of conception. He says that when it is conceived, in verse 15, it gives birth to sin. So, adults in the room, this is the picture of what happens. Sperm and egg come together. There is now a conception. There's now something that is going to grow and mature and turn into something. And this is the nature of sin. Because there's nothing more joyful in your life. As you go through the, 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 all of the milestones of life, one of the most joyful experiences is the moment of conception when you find out 
She's with child. There's a great joy. There's a great longing and a great waiting. And when that child is in the womb, it's like great anticipation. Jesus compares childbirth to the, the joy that exists after suffering. When we talk about endurance in the book of James, Jesus will take the picture of endurance, approaching the cross and say, you moms know what it's like to endure. Remember the labor pains, how bad it hurt? But for the child that would come on the other side, the joy outweighs the pain. It was true of my wife's experience. Our first child, she endured all of the pain and then held the child in her arms and says, let's do all of that again. What's happening now is the exact inverse. Think of the great joy of childbirth. And for this moment in scripture, it is so real that it will land on some hearts to remind of great pain. Because James is saying, this is what sin is. It's presenting to you the joy of a child. The desire. Desire is a good thing. Your desires are trying to point out to you things that are good. You desire food. You desire sex. You desire a good life. All of those desires are trying to find the best version of those things. And James says, think about sin like this. It's coming to you in a desire. It looks good. And then it's looking like it's, it's almost the joy of childbirth. It's, it's presenting to you a package that's so exciting. And yet what comes out? It's full grown. Imagine the child full grown in the womb. Conception. Nine months later, a stillborn birth. You go, you take something that was going to promise you great joy, and now we're talking about the greatest pain that some people ever experienced in their life. They were expecting life, and they received death. And this is the warning for believers against the temptation to sin. It comes to you to to reach a desire that God put in you that could have been good and says, what if you do it this way? And at first it may seem good. It may seem exciting and it may seem fun. But it's end. It takes you to death. There is a story. I should actually say there are all sorts of stories throughout Scripture that allows us to see this cycle played out in people that God uses. I think one of the reasons for that that we, that we read about so many people that are used by God that actually go through the cycle of sin is so that we would be pointed to the final question of this hour, which is, what do we do about it? And there's really only one answer. There's not a life, that, there's not a number of lives that you can study that make it through unscathed. In fact, the Bible says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God and have to deal with the reality of the cycle of sin and death, except for one. And we get reminders of that all through scripture. God used this person and they fell and they sinned and they are a picture of God's glory and man's brokenness. And one of the most famous examples specifically for the cycle of sin presented in James is the life of David. David is a man that was after God's own heart, used in great ways to glorify God and to step out in faith for God and to be used by God to do God's work. And he reminds all of us that the cycle of sin will take everyone out who goes down the road. And so we get the picture in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I won't go through the story verse by verse, but I can give you the introduction to the story, and I can tell you some of the effects of the story, and then we can try to find something in his story that would be a caution to us when we ask the question, where is this taking us? It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and he walked around the roof of the king's house. And many of you know where this story leads. But we pause there because there's already some indications. It says that David woke up 
in the evening. This is a picture oftentimes of how the word will use the night to point us towards sin and, and the day is pointing us towards righteousness. It says this happens at nighttime. And David is restless. He's not at peace in his heart. There's something that's causing him to wake up. Many people will point out that David is not with his men fighting in the Lord's army. He's at home, idle. Doesn't know what to do. So he's up in the middle of the night, and now he starts walking around. And notice the setting. Notice the scene. It says that he's on the roof, which again, might, be, it might just be an added detail because this is a historical account. And it might be a reminder for us, as we'll get reminders all through the book of James, that we are called to the lowly seat. And we've got a king on top of a palace, on top of the roof, looking down. And the word gives us this great warning that where there's much elevation, there will be a mighty fall. And that's exactly what we see in the life of David. It says, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. There are some desires in David's heart that exist in most hearts here this morning. The beauty of a woman. And he gazes upon her, and now he has a capacity for evil that will take him down a path of destruction. One of the ways that we can answer where this leads you is sin will lead you to more sin. Sin begets sin. It's one of the dangers of this cycle is that it, it gives you a real-life experience of the unraveling nature of disobeying God. Uh, I say a real-life example because the world we live in is a theological example of what happens when you disobey God. Our world is unraveling. It will continue to unravel until God puts a, a line in the sand once and for all and returns to his kingdom to set all things to right. But you get a picture of that in your own life where sin enters, more sin enters. And so David's first idea is to bring Bathsheba's wife or her husband home. His name was Uriah. He's out in the battle. He tries to, to, to bring him home so that there's a way to maybe cover this up. And, and, and as soon as he found out that Bathsheba was with child, he needed it to look like it was Uriah's child. So he gives him some of that king's wine, some of the good drink. He says, why don't you go be with your wife before you go back out to war? And in one of the most gut-wrenching parts of the story, Uriah says, who am I to sleep in the comfort of my house and be with my wife when men are out fighting for the king? What a moment of honor that he shows. And this would be a great time for David to intervene and make a confession. And yet, what does he do? Sin begets sin. So he says, if that's not going to work, go back to the, 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 to the battlefield and he reaches out to Joab through a messenger, which was the, the commander of the army, and they hatch a plan to send everyone up to the most dangerous part of the wall, retreat, and only Uriah and a few would be left behind so that he would be killed. Sin leads to death. And there will be a lot of ways that you can learn from the story of David to remind us that sin begets sin and sin begets death. But one of them is that when we think about the death of sin, we, we should really broaden the scope of how damaging it is. The idea that sin is something that you can do and deal with the consequences yourself is very narrow view of how dangerous it is. Uriah, a man of great honor, pays the price for the sin of David. 
Then it says that Bathsheba, when she finds out about this, goes into a state of great mourning. Her heart has to break because of the sin that David committed. And then it says the baby that she conceived and gave life to actually died. Sin leads to death. And there's physical death, and then there's an even greater death, which I warn you this morning, a greater death is the sin that separates you from the life-giving power of God. And so in, in David's life, we see something happen to this man of the Psalms. You read the book of Psalms, which is the Bible's book of worship, and you read how many times it says, a Psalm of David, a man who loved the Lord. And yet when this happens, the Psalm that he writes for all of us to read, in the season of our life, when we're caught in the cycle, is the Psalm of Repentance in Psalm chapter 51. And he cries out with all sorts of indications that his soul is wrecked, creating me a clean heart. And then he says, cast me not from your presence. He requests that because part of the danger of sin in your life is that the appeal, the hook, the bait on the lure says sin is going to be amazing. This temptation is going to be great. This 15 minutes of pleasure is going to be so worth it. This money you line your pockets with is going to go so far. And as soon as you sin, what happens? The sin that looked great on the hook is now a reason for you to be shamed and separated from God. And that's what happens to David's life. Please, don't, don't, don't cast me from your presence. There are people this morning that are not at church because they're struggling with the weight and the burden of guilt. How could I come and sing songs and listen to the word when I know what I've done? Sin begets sin and separation. And then David says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, which means something that needs to be restored has been totally broken. This is a lesson that comes up in the life of David, and it will be looked at again in the, in the exhortation from the book of James. But let me just state it clearly. The joy of your life, the source of joy, the fountain of goodness in your life comes from God. As David has broken the will of God in his life, part of his plea is that joy would return. And that is Another way we answer the question, where does this take you? It will eventually take you to a place where you are lacking the spark of joy that God wants all of us to experience. I find it interesting that we live in a world, a country, a, a, a city that is progressively getting farther away from the core of loving God. And yet at the same time, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to depression and loneliness. It's like this great liberation of thought and ideas is the enlightenment. And it's like, free me from the Christian straitjacket that is going to tell me how to love and how to live and let me do it however I want. And the freer you become apart from God, the more you wish you had the joy. And it's true in each one of our experiences as followers of Christ. There is joy in the presence of the Lord, and you are not in the presence of the Lord when you are following the cycle of sin. The Bible says in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. How many of us are playing with the way that seems right? 
well, I've, you know, the word says this, or I've, I've heard this is kind of the, the way of Jesus, but I'm going to experiment with this. I'm going to try this style of living. I'm going to do what I want to do. James says, your own desires will turn into sin, and sin, which promises the joy of life, will eventually turn into the despair of death. So we ask the question, what do we actually do about that? No matter how far you've tracked in this sermon, there's something inside all of us that does not want to die and wants to experience life and life more abundant, which is why the invitation of Jesus appeals to so many people. He comes to bring life and life more abundant. So what do we do? It says in verse 16, do not be deceived. There is a way that seems right, but its end is death. James says, don't get fooled. Don't be deceived. And then he says, my beloved brethren. I think there's a lot of answers that exist in that one verse, but I'll say that part of this is going to be found in the next verse, verse 17. The answer for some of us is happening right now. The answer against the temptation to sin and to go your own way actually happens when you put your faith and practice the gospel on the ground in this next verse. When you actually believe this, not with just theology, but with your life, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So the first answer that James will give is, know the source of sin, your own heart, and also, don't be deceived, know the source of every good and every perfect thing in this world. There's but one source. It all comes down from the Father. There is nothing in your life that is good for you or that could be qualified as completing you or perfect for you that does not come from the heart of God for you, which pulls one of the ammunition bullets away from the gun of temptation because in temptation, as we look in Genesis 3, it is rooted in this simple concept. Did God really say? That is how the first temptation enters into the ears of humanity. And it's how it continues even today. This idea, this wondering, this thought that maybe Christianity is a bit of a straitjacket. Maybe following Jesus is a narrow path and there are some good things for your life that you've got to find on your own. Every sin is rooted in a lie that God is withholding something good from you. Every sin rooted in the lie that God is withholding something good for you that you have to go out and find for yourself. So James says, every good and every perfect gift comes from God. And then he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Of his own will. James is going to say something here that we have to view through the whole context of what he's been trying to teach us for the past four weeks. God loves you. He wanted to bring you into his kingdom. 
That's why he says when you're going through trials and you're, you're called to the joyful perspective and you don't have it, go to God and he'll give you wisdom. If you ask him, he gives it liberally without reproach, without judging you. You go to God and say, I need your answer. I, I need your wisdom. And James says, don't worry. He'll give it to you. He loves you. And that's why I love in verse 16, it took me all week to finally find this one word and it stand out to me to where I'd underline it in circle. It says, my beloved brethren. Everything good comes from God. In other words, God is always the best plan for your life. And he says, he wanted to save you. He desired that you would be the first fruit. It's a, it's a recollection to the, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and their feasting, and they offered the first fruits to God. And God says, I, that's the best. That's the prized possession. And of all of creation, I want you. Fill in your name of his own will of his own desire, I can confidently say that God so loved you that he sent his son for you. Because where there is sin, there is death. But he who knew no sin, tempted in every way but never sinned, became sin, paid the penalty of death for you, and it was his own will. I'm, I actually just finished a book on Christian discipline this week, and it's kind of like a sermon on sin, it kind of hits you a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I really want to hear this one. Um, and it's the same with discipline because it talks about our, my prayer life and my rest in God and, and my love of the word and how to cultivate more of that in my life. And then at the very end, it's like, now put it into practice, gospel on the ground, live out these disciplines and here's some ways to, to go from maybe a slothful disciple to someone who's got zeal for the Lord. Here's someone to, how do you have a revival in your heart through discipline? And you can almost read it like, this is heavy because I, I, I'm, I'm falling short. And I love the author ended the book with this really important phrase. It could almost be lost in your reading. But he says, I just want you to know that as I'm writing this book, I am smiling and not scowling. And I read that and I thought, that's James. That's Jesus. That's the Lord for your life as you come in to hear a message about repentance and cleansing and, 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 and following the Lord. The Lord loves you. He loves you like he, a child that you would warn against the dangers of a fire. He loves you and, and his standard for love is that he laid down his life to save you. And I say all of that because so often we talk about sin and we talk about salvation and we talk about all of the things that, that bring us closer to the, the way of Jesus and, it, and it, it, just, it just goes out as theology and doctrine. But this whole message is James trying to tell these people going through difficulties in the world and difficulties in their own temptations a, a way of joy a way where their, their life, regardless of all of the stuff that's happening and the temptations they have, would find the love of God. And I, I, just, I just so see us missing that mark so often. Are we people who read the word as the Lord's love letter? Or are we reading it as the, 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 the preparation for the quiz? Are we coming here to get understanding or to get Christ? Are we coming here to, to have better doctrine and theology, which will be a byproduct, or come here to fill up our souls in worship so that when we leave here, we're so in love with God that the bait and the lure of sin looks silly? 
the Bible says, in his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore, which means when you know God and you practice the way of Jesus and you spend time in his word and you receive all of the free gifts that come from above, we are supposed to be set aside as joyful people. And yet, in my own life, I sometimes just use all of this as my understanding, wisdom, knowledge, theology, and doctrine. And I don't look that different than someone who's got a worldview that's rooted in something totally different. We are supposed to be full of joy and hope, set apart as light and salt, that no matter what we go through, people would say, how do you do it? And we say, because God, he's so good, and he's so loving, and he gives us joy that's not rooted in anything in this world. Are we those kind of people? The challenge for all of this, what do we do, is to love God so much because he first loved us that we're no longer tempted to love the things of this world. I I can't help but think of marriage in this way because one of the great uh, examples of sin is adultery. God will actually use the example of adultery against his people at times when he's giving the, the picture of double-mindedness in real life. He says, you know, you, 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 you've gone all over the place committing adultery with these false idols. Adultery is a picture of one of the grave sins of our life, and it's something that we're certainly not free of as a church. It's something that some of you probably have to repent of. And I just think about my own marriage and the times that I've sensed the temptation and the times that I'm just so grateful for the grace of God. Am I loving my wife? When I look at her eyes, it's harder for me to wander. You don't hear a lot of stories of adultery from the honeymoon. When the love is so blinding, you're so focused and you're so grateful and you're so infatuated, it would be crazy to look another direction. And with that same picture, you now look at Christ. Do you have that love? Or do you have a love for church and sermons and podcasts and songs and preachers and style and church government and end times? And you've got an understanding that gives you the ability to look around. The answer is don't be deceived. Everything good comes from God, and your proper response is to say, I love you, and I'm grateful. And when I come into this place, it's not just to get a sermon. It's to get so filled up, once again, because I'm a leaky vessel. It's so filled up, once again, for the love of God, that when I leave this place, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.